I would like to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Genesis. You've been with us, you know we're walking through the book of Genesis, and uh, today we're in uh, Genesis chapter 13, uh, all the way through chapter 14. A few years ago, a list was published, which contained and was titled, America's 20 Most Hated Companies. A few companies on the list make sense. Uh, so one of them was the Weinstein Company. I think I'm saying his name correctly. Founder, founded after Harvey Weinstein. You might know his name. Uh, famous Hollywood producer. Accused of multiple uh, sexual abuse uh, cases and allegations. So it makes sense. His is on there. Uh, Facebook is on there. I don't know why. Um, but there are others on there for other reasons, okay? And I'm going to list a few here. Uh, and, and in reality, like there are several that I agree with just off the top of my head. Because Anyway, United Airlines. It's the airline from Satan. Uh, Spirit Airlines. I've never flown Spirit. The University of Phoenix. You guys know that online college. Uh, they have like the commercials and stuff. University of Phoenix. EA Games, like a, a gaming company. Gaming company from Satan as well. Comcast, uh, TV company from Satan. And Sprint, phone company from Satan. I'm just kidding about all of Satan, but I, I, I don't like... They were all on there, and they weren't on there because they're actually from Satan. Okay, uh, the, the thread that ties all those companies together is that they over-promise and under-deliver. The majority of the companies on America's 20 most hated companies have this in common, that they over-promise and they under-deliver. Humans are infamous under-deliverers. My mom always told me, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. She was teaching me to be on my guard against people who make wild and extravagant promises. Uh, little did I know, and little did she know at the time that she was teaching me a theological lesson on human depravity. Uh, but here we are. Uh, we are by nature bad promise keepers. Bad promise makers and bad promise keepers. What we believe in, if, if you're in this room today, I, I might want to correct a wrong notion that you might have about what we believe. We don't believe in a religion where we make promises to either ourselves or to each other or to God. That's not what we're about. Nothing wrong with promises. Keeping promises is great. But that's not the, the ultimate foundation of our religion. We believe in a God who makes promises to us and He keeps them even when we cannot. All right? This is not about what we can offer, what we can put on the table. It's the fact that God puts everything on the table and He keeps them when we fail to. And the promises that He makes are wild and extravagant, gracious and merciful. And He keeps them. God made a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They disobey. They sin. Everything is plunged into ruin and chaos. But He makes a promise that He would bring a seed who would crush Satan. And since then, we've seen again and again and again that humans cannot keep up their end of the deal. We can't produce this seed. Then, in a mighty 
mighty act of grace, God called Abraham in chapter 12. And God promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will cause all nations to be blessed through you. And Abram immediately fails at playing his part. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, he gives into fear when he goes to Egypt. So we don't have much hope that Abram is going to succeed, right? We had like up until this point, what human has given us hope that this is going to be any different? We've seen uh, Cain, and, and Cain murders Abel, and uh, we've got Noah. And Noah seems great until he gets drunk. So this week, we learned something more, right? Last week, we learned a lot about God empowering our obedience. This week, we go a step further. God not only empowers our obedience, He ensures it. In these chapters, we see something remarkable. God works in Abraham to bring about what He promised to do through Abraham. God works in Abraham to bring about what He promised to do through Abram. Abraham. In this way, what we see in Abram is a picture of every believer. Right? That through ups and downs, progression and regression, obedience and blunder, Christ keeps us on a trajectory of holiness. The God who calls us, who saves us, who protects us, He provides, He leads, He guides and sustains, that is the God who makes us holy. As, as we'll see as we go on, this in no way diminishes our responsibility. Alright? You, in your seat, will be held responsible for your actions before God. The evil actions that you did and whether or not you did good actions. Okay, You will be held responsible for those. But, here's the deal. This does give us comfort in that the God who calls us to be holy will work to make us holy. He promises and He delivers. Paul, Paul said it the best in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's, that's our part. We're to work out our salvation in obedience with holy fear and holy trembling. For why? It is God who works in you to will and to work according to His good pleasure. So, listen, if you are willing and desiring and working to become holy today and to follow Christ and to love Him with all your heart and to seek Him and, and glorify Him, congratulations! That is God working in you to do that through you. So here's what this sermon is about. The success of the calling on us is sustained by the God who works in us for His glory. The success of the calling on us is sustained by the God who works in us for His glory glory he promises he delivers and in these chapters we see three ways that this happens that god does this now before we dive in we have quite a bit of of ground to cover in these chapters and so i'm not going to read them through because that would take too much of our time but 
I'll do a quick walkthrough uh, of each part as we get to it. So uh, if you look at chapter 13, in, in the first part of our passage, Abram is leaving Lot, li- or leaving Egypt with Lot and all their possessions. And so what happens is, if you look at verse 6, so the land could not support both of them dwelling together. All right, so they leave, they leave Egypt, they go back to the land, and then they, they, they can't stay in the land together. So this results in Abram saying to Lot in verse 9, look at verse 9, separate yourself from me. If you take the left, left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot chooses uh, the Jordan Valley, the, the area of Sodom, which leaves Abram with the land of Canaan. And then there at the end of chapter 13 and verse 14, God makes this promise to Abram, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. All right, that's, that's this, the first portion that we're going to be looking at is, is, this, is this chapter 13. That's what happens. So what does this teach us about God's role in our holiness? First, God orchestrates. He orchestrates. Specifically, in this chapter, God is orchestrating fulfilling His promise to Abram. In Genesis 12, God promises, I will make your name great, and I will make you into a great nation. But you can't do that if you're homeless. right? You can't go to your house uh, today and say, I'm a great nation, because you're not. (laughs) Even your land doesn't really belong to you. I mean, technically speaking... I don't know, I won't get into all that, but that's why in, in chapter 12, verse 7, God says to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. Right? Abram needs land to be a nation, and so God says, I will give you this land. And it's in this land that God has promised to Abram that Abram and Lot outgrow it. They outgrow its ability to sustain them. And it's here that we see God orchestrates through difficulty. God orchestrates through difficulty. When when Abram and Lot come out of Egypt and their possessions are too great, we read in verse 7 that there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now you might imagine just by the simple word strife that there's just some bickering right that's happening. But this this uh, word actually indicates something a little bit more dangerous. Like there's this antagonism that's brewing between them. The other day, I, I hear Willa's pitter-patter footsteps run into my office. I, I forget what part of the house I'm in, but I'm on the other side of the house, and I hear her run back there, and so I shout from the other side of the house, Willa, what are you doing? Just drawing a W. If she's anywhere near pens and pencils, and in my office there are a lot of those, and you hear her say, I'm just drawing a W, you go to where she is ASAP because there's a lot more dangerous stuff that's happening than just drawing a W. Something really destructive is about to happen with some pens and pencils. There's a lot more that's happening underneath this strife. There's a, a danger that's, that's looming and a destruction that's looming in this strife. And something needed to happen before a small war erupts between Abram, Abram and, and Lot. It, this creates an instructive picture for us because so often our faith is threatened like this, in this way. 
it's, it's threatened with difficulty and often simply through life just being difficult. I, I mean, think about tension in relationships and how that can challenge our faith. Like, maybe your faith is what's causing a tension between you and a friend, you and a parent, you and a cousin or a coworker. As an example, a great tension that many Christians face today uh, happens when they might know someone personally who is LGBTQ and they wonder, how can the Bible condemn something that seems so innocent and harmless? I mean, that's a real issue for a lot of Christians today. Approximately 30% of Generation Z identifies as LGBTQ. So chances are our children and grandchildren are going to grow up knowing and having a friend who identifies as this. And that can create a challenge for their faith. I mean, and that's this, and that is nothing to say about the cost of what it means to follow Christ, something we saw last week. But whether that's us that's facing these challenges or others we know who are being challenged in their faith, our confidence is not in our ability to keep it. Our confidence is not in our own ability or our own power. Because if it were up to us, we would lose it. Every time, every time, every chance we got to lose our faith, we would. Our confidence is in God who orchestrates everything for our good. And he often does that through difficulty. Often it's precisely the difficulty that causes us to depend totally on God. Sometimes my prayer can only be God. I don't know if my faith will make it. I need you to keep me. And that, that can be my only prayer sometimes. Charles Spurgeon said, I learned to kiss the wave that threw me upon the rock of ages. God orchestrates through difficulty. But there's another aspect of that here, and it's that God orchestrates through blunder. Back in chapter 12, Abram jeopardized God's, God's promise when they were in Egypt. Right? He, 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 God promises right to make Abram through a great nation. That's supposed to happen through him and Sarah. But guess what? He gives his wife away to Pharaoh. He jeopardizes the promise. And, and God <laughs> prevents that from happening. And then, the same thing is happening again in chapter 13. Abram actually offers the land to Lot. God promises Abram this land, and Abram's like, well, you can have it if you want. We're invited to see God's gracious work and blunder here, and it's through both Lot and Abraham. Through Lot, when Abraham, Abram offers Lot the choice, Lot focuses on what? On, on what's delighting to his eyes. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. So he sees it and he, he chooses it because it, it looks pretty, it's great, it's wonderful, but there's a danger that we're warned of already in verse 13, just a few verses below. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
And if you're familiar with the Bible, then you're familiar with how it turns out for Lot. And it doesn't turn out good. We'll actually get to that in a few, a few weeks. Lot's life teaches us the great cost of following the desires of your flesh. Whether that desire of your flesh is drunkenness or following it with lust or pornography or gluttony or pleasure. There's a great cost that comes with those things. And, and praise God that He orchestrates Lot's rescue from all of this. This isn't a lesson that you can sin and get away with it. It's that if God orchestrates your rescue from it, it is a great mercy. God orchestrates through Lot's blunder. And God also orchestrates through Abram's blunder. We're not to simply think Abram got lucky here. He offers this uh, land... Hey, God promised me this land, but here you go. You can choose it if you want. We're not just be like, I'm so glad Lot chose it. We are invited to see God's active work in sustaining His promise and in sustaining Abram. Even though Abram showed a, a great lack of concern for what it might mean for him to give the land to Lot, God reaffirms His commitment to and His promise to Abram. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God showed a great mercy to both Lot and to Abram. He remained committed to his promise, and he is orchestrating the work in them that he has promised to do through them. And that is a great comfort. Our rest comes from the fact that. God is sovereign over our lives and He cares. Again, Paul says in Philippians that, that the work He began in you, He will bring it to completion. We're invited in this chapter to trust in and pray for the same orchestration that God demonstrates here. So we enter the next chapter, chapter 14. This chapter, especially the first part, gives us information, a lot of information about two sets of kings that battle against each other. And it's, it's five against four, okay? So we read in verse 8, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Irak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. And the four kings defeat the king of Sodom and the others. Well, what's funny is there's no fight mentioned, right? There's this big prolong. I mean, it's building up the scene. It's talking about how the five kings have been under subjection for a long time and they're rebelling and it just builds up. You know, like the Star Wars credit, opening credit scenes? you know the yellow rolling it's this big prologue and then everyone takes their fight their stand of fight right they're they're doing it and then verse 10 now the valley of Sidim was full of bedouin pits and as the kings of sodom and gomorrah fled some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country 
And like this big prologue, and there's no fight. The next scene is just they're running. But the important thing is, is that the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. So what's Abram's response? Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So what does this show us about God's role in our holiness? God conquers. God conquers. It might have jumped out at you, but the, the focus of this chapter is on, on kingship. Okay, you have all of these details about these nine kings, and it makes this, this battle not just like a, a battle among nations or different armies, but a battle among kings. And we'll get to it, but at the end of this chapter, in chapter 14, two kings approach Abram. And without telling us in explicit words, Moses, the author, is showing us that Abram engages this kingly realm as a king. Right? The the writer is trying to show us that Abram is is now a, a kingly figure. And this is what's amazing. Listen, this is what is amazing. At what point have we been told that Abram is a warrior? Like, or, or a fighter? Think about it. Just a chapter ago, Abram was afraid of one king, the king of Egypt. And now, in like the next chapter, he's up against four kings with only 318 men. It's like Marlin from Finding Nemo, you know, Nemo's dad. He's, he's a little clownfish and he's scared of everything. And it'd be like if we skipped the whole movie and, and like he's scared of the barracuda at the beginning of the movie and the next scene he's fighting sharks or something. I don't know. This, it's just, it doesn't make sense. What's this showing us is that God's role, his sovereignty in Abram's successes, it's only becoming clearer as the, as this passage goes on. In fact, uh, later on in verse 20, Abram's explicitly told that it's not your expertise, not your ability as a strategist, not your role as a general that brought you the victory. It's God delivering this victory to you. The point is, listen, the point is that Abram is certainly a different man than he was in chapter 12. And it's not Abram who managed to do that. It is God working in Abram to accomplish through Abram, the purposes of his glory. In this way, we are shown that God conquers two entities, okay? The first and foremost, and most obvious, is that God conquers our enemies. Right? God conquers our enemies. We believe that God will conquer physical enemies at the last judgment. Kings and rulers that oppress, pervert justice, persecute his people we're warned repeatedly in scripture not to take matters into our own hands 
but to trust God who will avenge. This is what allows us, as Jesus said, to turn our cheeks and to bless those who curse us because ultimately their fate is in God's hand and the judgment belongs to God. We Listen, church, we don't get caught up in cultural fervor or societal upheaval because we trust God. We don't follow the, the waves of passion like the rest of culture does. Yes, God will conquer physical enemies, and, and, we, and that happens throughout the, the Old Testament, but more importantly, God conquers spiritual enemies. We're told our primary enemies in Scripture are not those who persecute us, are not those who put us in jail. They are not our enemies. Our enemies are actually spiritual forces of darkness. Paul tells us exactly that in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Not against humans. Not against a man. Not against a ruler. Not against a prince. Whatever. But against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And guess how you fight spiritual forces? With spiritual weapons. The Gospel. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2 that through Christ and His death on the cross, God has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of, of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And this is very good news for us because if God leaves us to fight them on our own, we lose. Therefore, God must fight our enemies if we're going to grow in holiness. I mean, David knew what this meant. He prayed in Psalm Psalm 18. God rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. You've heard the expression, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's a lie. Because everything is more than you can handle. Sin, Satan, they're way more than you can handle. And they, and they are there so that you will depend on God. God conquers our enemies. He also conquers our sin. You might think that winning a great victory with only 318 men would be a great moment for Abram to grow proud. I remember during a, a soccer game in high school, I kicked the ball toward the center of the field to, to get it toward one of our goal scorers. Instead, what happened was this miraculous thing. The wind blew the ball and it curves and it goes right into the goal. I score. It's awesome. I'm cheering. Teammates come to celebrate with me. But I couldn't claim victory and I couldn't boast in what I did because I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah, I did that. That's on purpose. Uh, no, just like I can't boast in my great soccer prowess, this wouldn't have been an occasion for pride for Abraham. Rather, this would have revealed how vulnerable he actually was. He's around 80 years old with no children and he can only muster 318 men. Sit in the same way. Like if you have 318 men against four kingdoms, what makes you think that you can defeat them? In the same way, what makes us think that we can defeat sin in our lives? I mean, what... Are we so proud to think that we can kill sin? No, our only hope in the fight against sin is that God conquers. That was Abraham's hope here, and that is our hope. Listen, 
When we aren't trusting that God will conquer, we try to fight in our own power. We, we make, might make peace with sin. We despair that it cannot be defeated. And most importantly, we're not trusting that His grace is enough to defeat our sin. Church, the reality that God conquers isn't an excuse to do nothing. It's a guarantee that our works will work because God is the one behind them. The reason we, we fight sin is because we know there's someone behind us who can kill it. The reason we fight spiritual forces of darkness is because we know there's someone behind us who has conquered them and will conquer them. It's a guarantee. And then we come to the last part of chapter 14. And Abram is met by two kings. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer, and the kings were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. These two kings represent two different realities, and it's in Abram's response that we see this final, uh, final reality. God sanctifies. God sanctifies. These two kings represent two different kinds of rule. Okay, On the one hand, the kingdom of Sodom is like how we normally imagine human rule. Peter Gentry wrote that the king of Sodom represents the notion that one acquires goods and rules by might. Might makes right. It is the normal pattern of kingship in Canaan. An absolute ruler who uses his position to aggrandize himself. Make himself bigger. Better. It's much like Vladimir Putin today. And in many ways, like the behavior of a number of CEOs and leaders. On the other hand, we have this guy named Melchizedek. And boy, what a mystery this guy is. But he is far different from the kingdom of Sodom because he recognizes and, recognize and serves God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Alan Ross wrote that this incident shows how limited our thinking often is. While our attention is focused on Abram as the one who carried the spiritual hope of the world, there emerged out of an obscure Canaanite valley a man nearer to God than Abram. And he blessed Abram. So, listen, while we are told, right, that, that God is carrying out His purposes through Abram, we don't know a lot about what's happening in the rest of the world. In fact, just from the presence of this guy, there's worship of the one true God throughout the ancient Near East. It's really something, isn't it? And it's in Melchizedek that we see God's role in sanctification is by satisfaction. The king of Sodom actually offers uh, uh, Abram something very tempting. Get rich by worldly might and share in glory. He says, uh, he says in king of Sodom in verse 21, said Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Right? So underneath this offer is, is this offer of worldly might and worldly glory. But Abram refuses the offer. In, in short, he, he 
actually chooses loyalty to God. I'm not loyalty to, to worldliness or worldly kingship. I'm loyal to God and how God defines kingship. And why is that? It's through the blessing that God offers through Melchizedek. Verse 19, And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Listen, the reason Melchizedek uh, refers to God as possessor of heaven and earth not only reveals where riches and provision come from, but that all that we need is found in God. If God possesses everything, then everything we might need is found in the one who possesses everything. And God sanctifies us by satisfying us. Listen, if God is not satisfying us, we will run in every other direction that we can. To all sorts of things. To to sin, worldliness, worldly pleasures. And each time we sin, it's not like we're breaking a rule. Each time we sin, we say to God, you're not satisfying enough. But today, if you want to fight sin and grow in holiness, seek to be satisfied in God. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. The husband who lusts and wishes his wife looked different or looked like a different woman doesn't need his wife to change. Doesn't simply need to be grateful for his wife. And even doesn't even really need to try to see his wife differently. He must first find a deep satisfaction in God who makes all worldly standards look appalling and all else will follow. This leads to the second way God sanctifies by heart change. The king of Sodom offers Abram a tempting deal, but because of Melchizedek's blessing, Abram is primed to see what lays behind it. That's that's what all sin is, right? It's an outward appeal of what looks so good and so satisfying, but in the end is rot and death. We have a few fishermen in here, right? What do you do when you go fishing? You can't just cast out any line or any hook or any lure. If you do, you might as well go to the bridge down by Fellows Lake, spend all day catching nothing, and go home. All right? You customize your rod, your line, your hook, and your lure for the kind of fish you're trying to catch. And even when you get the right combination, right, you you try to maneuver the lure to make it look appealing. But in the end, it doesn't turn out good for the fish, does it? And sin doesn't throw fish away, it devours them. Sin and Satan are masters of the human heart. They know exactly what makes you click. And they are more patient than you are. They are stronger than you are. And they are smarter than you are. Our only hope is that God would change the very ways that our heart works. That's what's remarkable about Abram here. Since his fearful response to Pharaoh in Egypt and his self-preserving attitude, we're not just seeing behavior change in Abram. We're seeing a heart change. 
And look, we're not after making you a better person. I'm not trying to make you good people. God's not trying to make you into a better person. The Bible isn't trying to change your behavior. God wants to change you at your deepest level. Your heart. And once your heart changes, everything else follows. Desires change. Thoughts change. Words change. Actions change. We don't want just sin forgiven. We want sin cleansed. Get it out of me. So we pray that God would sanctify us through satisfying us and through changing our hearts. We are invited in these chapters to see God's work in Abram to accomplish what He promised to do through Abram. And we're invited to see this in our lives as followers of Christ. We have a calling on us. Our calling is to be holy and to glorify God. We have a calling on us that God works in us to accomplish through us His purposes. And I want to end today with an encouragement and a warning. The encouragement is this. That we have someone greater than Melchizedek. Hebrews 5 tells us, and being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abram, but Jesus, as the eternal king priest, dispenses blessing freely to all who come to Him. Jesus is our source of satisfaction when our desires are all out of whack. He is our source for heart change when our hearts are are sick. Go to Jesus, for in His role as king-priest, He has everything you are looking for. That which your heart most longs for is found in Jesus. And listen, your, your holiness, your faith, it ultimately falls on Him. Don't, don't miss what He says in, in, in Hebrews here. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Right? We are to obey Him, but ultimately it is from Him and through Him and to Him. So that's our encouragement. The warning is that we dare not use God's sovereignty in our lives as an excuse to do nothing. If God's sovereignty and His work in us and His sustaining our faith and His working to make us holy, if that is an excuse to become passive or sinful, then we've already missed the point. Moreover, listen, if you are not growing more holy over time, listen, this is not just about, Abram did not have just a straight line trajectory. He had ups and downs, progression, regression, blunders and obedience. It's the same. But, but, if you are not growing more holy over time, you have no warrant to believe God is working in you at all. When God saves, He sanctifies. He not only purchased your forgiveness, He purchased your holiness too. So the answer, whether you are hopelessly lost or a struggling Christian, is to fly to Jesus. 
a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's respond to him this morning. Lord Jesus, you are a great high priest. You save us not only from wrath. You save us not only from condemnation. You not only forgive our sin, past, present, and future, but You make us holy. Lord, we read in Romans that not only are are we justified in Your sight, but we're fully sanctified and glorified. We're saved not only from the punishment of sin, but from the power of sin. You died not only to forgive, but You died to make us holy. So Lord Jesus, we fall flat on our faces this morning. We get all of this so out of whack. We go astray. We disobey. We become passive. We use Your Word and Your sovereignty as an excuse. But, oh Lord Jesus, by Your sovereign mercy, work in us to make us holy. Change our desires. Change our hearts that our actions would follow. And help us to work and to fight and obey knowing that You are behind all of it by great mercy and sovereign grace. Lead us to You and to deeper holiness in You. In Jesus' name, Amen.